0: We open our Bibles. Uh, we're going to head over to Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. <clears throat> You'll be happy to know there are no names in this chapter, this section. <clears throat> no hard to pronounce ones, anyway. Um, <clears throat> as you're doing so, I'll tell you about uh, there's an American survey recently found that just 14% of Americans consider themselves very happy. All right? I don't know how you would answer that, but. Uh, uh, the same survey has been going on for over 50 years. It began in 1972, so not over 50 years. 50 years, on the dot, because we have math students here now. Uh, and until recent years, the, the percentage of people who said that they were very happy had, had never dropped below 29%, Right. So that's jumped down significantly. This survey also revealed that those who are actively religious, right? They don't know how to define it in any really helpful way to us except for this. They they did define it this way. Those who participate in worship on a regular basis, um, uh, they are 44% more likely to rate themselves very happy. So you were 44% likely, more likely to rate yourself as very happy. Now, a significant reason for why this is dropping, why less and less Americans are considering themselves very happy is this, this growing apathy towards God, towards the Word of God, uh, this drifting away from, from church involvement, and, and in some cases, this deconstruction of, of faith that is, seems to be spreading in a, an un, ungodly way. And you might wonder, you know, why, why mention these stats? Who cares what some survey has to say? And I just mention it because this, this passage that we're looking at today is it draws our attention to the emotions of our hearts, something we don't always think about, right? It shows us that there is a time for grieving. It shows us that there is a time for rejoicing. And, and we don't naturally get those right all the time. And so before we, we read, let me just remind you of what the situation is, right? Uh, thousands of Israelites have gathered into the Watergate area, in, that sounds weird when you say it that way, into Jerusalem at the Gate of Water, but that still sounds weird. Uh, anyway, it's for the Feast of Trumpets, and, and by the way, I failed to mention this last week, but the Feast of Trumpets was actually last Monday in, in real time, and, and so we're pretty close to the, the actual day, the actual time that all these events are going on, only we're 2,467 years after that. Um, and, and so then anyway, Ezra the priest has been reading God's word and he along with the other Levites, remember they're spread out in the group, they're expositing, they're explaining, they're preaching God's word uh, to, to the people and, and, and as we read today, you're going to see how the people then begin to respond and, and since I didn't get the outline in the bulletin for you, let me give it to you real quick, <clears throat> Roman numeral 1, uh, broken and contrite hearts, Roman numeral 2. <clears throat> from grieving to joy and Roman numeral 3 an expression of joy and generosity uh, so then let's, let's begin uh, reading follow along with me uh, beginning in verse 9 of, of Nehemiah chapter 8 <clears throat> and Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people and said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Abba Father, <clears throat> we have offered our praises, we have confessed our sins, we have been comfort to hear again of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Now, teach us today to to feel the weight of our sin and to feel the weight of that sin forgiven so that we learn to celebrate before you with a restful and a holy joy. Father, deliver us from now from from that ever-present enemy, that that enemy of indifference and distraction in the presence of your word. Uh, Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So... The initial question is, why are these men in tears, right, here at the beginning? Men and women, maybe children as well, but why, why are they in tears? So you kind of have to just step into this world, this moment a bit, right? Imagine if you will, you're, you're, you're part of this gathering, this outdoor gathering, and, and you've heard the word of God, maybe for the first time in your entire life. Maybe it's the first time in your entire life that it's actually been something you understood, that you, that you grasped, that it made any sense to you. You, you understand that, that you're part of this group, this particular group, the, the Israelites, God's chosen covenant people, and you, and you know some of your history as a, as a people. You know that you, you've been exiled because of disobedience to God's law. Only now you, you also know that you're no longer exiled, that you're, you're in the holy city. You, you can probably even see bits or parts of, of the temple from where you stand. And you've heard and you understood God's word this day, or you, as you do, you begin to see that, that you yourself have also not obeyed God. Not even close. You, you weren't even aware of, of some of this stuff, but you're suddenly aware you haven't, you haven't been doing it and the priest Ezra continues to, to, to read you're, you're learning about worship you're learning about sacrifice you're, you're learning about ways to, to love your, your fellow Jew and, and ways to provide and take care of the poor and the foreigner and you're, you're learning how, you, 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 how to live in the midst of a people that are, that are hostile to your faith more and more you, you realize that your, your ancestors all the people you look up to that they've been unfaithful You realize that you yourself have been unfaithful to God. You really, really, really understand that. And and you understand that he has continued to be faithful to you. And and so why do you begin to weep? Because you feel that guilt. You know that guilt. You own that guilt. As Isaiah said when he laid eyes upon the holiness of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among or in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, all their desperate, contrived justifications have been stripped away. And, and, and here they are now standing out here in this public space, just, just stripped bare before the Lord God Almighty. And they know themselves to be guilty. In simple terms, Scripture exposes our sin. And that's what's crushing them in this moment. They, they realize in one way or another, <clears throat> all of them, each of them, has fallen short of the glory of God. Making this guilt among the community both tragically universal and, and yet inescapably personal for each of them. You see, it's one thing <clears throat> to know you're a sinner in general terms. We, we all are easy to do that. Right? I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We're sinners, right? Uh, but it's quite another thing to actually realize your actual sin. The specifics of it, to, to know yourselves, I, I am a sinner, not just by declaration, but I can see it, I know it now. To, to know in your heart that, <clears throat> if you're honest, right, <clears throat> you're more concerned with yourself, with wealth, with pleasure, with pleasing other people than you're concerned with obeying or pleasing the Lord. There, there is this, this moment in, in conviction when you realize that you are guilty and thus you are actually really liable to God's punishment, that that's justice. This overwhelming sense of unworthiness, a sense of fear, that that, that image, right, of an outstretched arm grasping and, and hope or for hope rather before it escapes. And and what we observe here is nothing less than conviction to their very core. Not just because of some sin they did, but for the sin that they have just been living and dwelling in. It has been their home. There's only been a few times in my life when I have been present when this sort of deep, deep, deep conviction of sin just overtakes a person. And and this is exactly what it looks like. Sobbing. Wondering aloud even, right? What what have I done? What was I thinking? How how many years have I wasted in in rebellion against God? Many of these people weeping in Jerusalem and pregnant, or pregnant in public rather, many of these people are are grown men. And I say that because that's the last person you expect to be weeping in a public place like this. Only once in my life have I seen anything remotely like this. And it was when I was a teenager. I was just coming into the church. I didn't know much. Some people dragged me down to this uh, Promise Keepers Conference in the Astrodome, Eighth Wonder of the World. Uh, I, I was in the midst of 60,000 men. It's quite a thing to hear 60,000 men singing songs. But, but anyway, during one of the, the, the preaching aspects, uh, there was a pastor preacher, I don't know who he was, but he's talking about that Ephesians 5 call for, for men to love their wives, and he went into families and all these other things, and he was addressing these husbands and, and the way they treat their wives and how fathers love their children, disciple their children. He was talking about habitual pornography and sexual sin and, and, and this tendency to love sports more than, more than God and, and, and so much more, and, and many of these men just broke out sobbing in the area I was in. And and I remember this, it it stood out to me because it was so incredibly unsettling as a teenager to see grown men that seem like they have it all together suddenly just break down like this. Listen, what I observed that day at Promise Keepers and what we were observing in our passage today, I, I don't expect that to happen every single day. I don't expect that to happen every single Lord's Day. This is not a normal occurrence, but there is something quite normal here to learn, and, and that's this, that, that this passage calls us to repent of any emotional indifference that we have in response to God's word. As if we're going to treat it like it's some intellectual book alone, like we're reading Plato's Republic or something the question in in each of our hearts, right? Do do you take this serious? Do do you yield your life to what the word has to say? Jesus, our our Lord, in John 16, 8, promised that the Holy Spirit would continue to convict the world concerning sin. It's a work that the Spirit does in our life. Later, uh, in Acts 2, 37, in response to Peter's preaching, right, we're told that the, the people were cut to the heart. They weren't like, oh, that's Interesting. They were cut to the heart. The immediate application at this point is is to pray for that sort of heart level conviction. Particularly if you've got some habitual sins in your life that, that you're struggling with. That you ask the, the Holy Spirit, right, to, to file away any callous uh, that has formed upon your conscience, upon your heart, right? A- ask Him to remove that. Ask Him to, to give you a fresh conviction when, whenever uh, you are sitting under the preaching of the Word, whenever you are reading the Word alone in your house or with others. You see, conviction of, of sin is, is a beautiful gift of the Lord. Sure, it's miserable in the moment, but it is a beautiful gift of the Lord. And, and, and yet, understand this, understand this. Conviction is not an end in itself. The goal is not, oh, conviction, we're done. Conviction, it means something greater. It leads to something greater. Right? When God is involved, it leads to repentance, to forgiveness. It leads to, to joy in the Lord. We're going to see a bit more on repentance in a couple weeks. Um, so then the weeping among the people has spread so much. It is, it is so intense, right? It's, it's out there. Here's Ezra and the others, and they're teaching, and they see it, and they're like, we've we got to address this. We've got to stop, like, you know. And, and he does. He stops reading and exposing the Torah, and he addresses these sobbing people. And the first thing he says is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Right? That's his first statement. This day is holy to the Lord your God. And, and he's going to point that out, that this day is holy two more times in this tiny little passage two more times. And, and I want you to understand this, right, because we, we think of holy as, as just pure, like white, right? As white as white can possibly be or, or, or something clean as clean as can possibly be um, as pure. And it does mean that. That is absolutely right. But it also means to be set apart. And that's often what we're seeing in, in, in Scripture. This day is set apart. It's not like all the other days. It's different. This is a day, you know, for the Lord. And, and you remember what day Ezra's talking about. I, I mentioned at the beginning, but you can glance all the way back to verse 2 if you want to see it, right? It's the first day of the seventh month. It is a God-established feast day called the Feast of Trumpets, or or as it's known today, Rosh uh, Hashanah. I'm probably saying that wrong. I nailed it. Tim went to Jewish school at one point. Um, and, And it means this. It means the first of the year. Which is confusing since the, the seventh month is not the first of the year by anyone's really understanding. Uh, this was not originally what it was known as, right? Nor at Nehemiah's time was it known this way. Uh, was it considered the first of the year? That's a, a, a newer thing. And it, it's that rather now because, um, because it, was, it was recognized by the Jewish people as this is the anniversary of when Adam and Eve were created. And so they would celebrate that, and you can understand if that's what you're kind of recognizing, oh, new beginnings, and that new beginnings uh, became this, this theme, right? The harvest is over, and they thought, okay, so that means the next harvest season is beginning at this point, and thus the Jewish new year actually begins in the seventh month of the year, and it's really confusing, but that's why. Uh, anyway, Leviticus 23, 24 explains uh, as the people of God's day would have understood this. And it says this. It says, On this day, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. That's a holy gathering. And, and the idea that parents, right, couldn't you have trumpet blast and rest? That seems really difficult. Um, that's what it was. Uh, it, it was a day to remember the, the many works that God had done for his people in, in the past. In other words, let's, let's think back to all the faithfulness to God through all the years. Let's remember that. Uh, a, a day you know, other than the Sabbath, where they don't work, where they're doing something different, it was a unique day set apart. We'd call it a holiday, probably. Uh, a day where, where people gathered with lots of food, with, with, with lots of wine, yes, alcohol, and they shared stories, and they rejoiced in the Lord. Uh, to you and I, right, it probably sounds a lot like Thanksgiving, minus football and political arguments with, you know, Uncle Larry or whoever. Uh, and, and, and really, more gratitude that's actually directed at, at God, not just this, this general idea that our culture tends to do it. Now, Now, we don't celebrate these feast days anymore, right? It was last Monday. I don't think any of us threw a party, not even Jewish school, Tim. Uh, We we don't do that because it it all is pointing forward to Jesus, and and these feasts are fulfilled at the coming of the Lord. However, there there is a day for us that is called holy, that is set apart. It's it's on our calendar, our Gregorian calendar. It's labeled as the day Sunday. In in church history, you might know it as uh, the Lord's Day uh, or the Christian Sabbath. If I'm honest, as a, as a family, we tend to fluctuate the way we, we actually intentionally set this day apart. I wish that wasn't true, but uh, other times we do it more so than, than not. Uh, and I will say this when we are more intentional to set the Lord's day apart as a day of rest, of a, of a day of, you know, even just enjoying good food, uh, when we do that, life is better. And I, I won't go into the whole Sabbath practice uh, right now, but I will say this I did preach on it earlier this year. Uh, Our sermon recordings are are numbered, and if you really want to go listen to it, Sermon 380 called Sabbath Rest. Uh, That's all I'll say about that right now. Uh, But do recognize that. That's our closest comparison we have to this feast day. Anyway, in in verse 9, after Ezra declares this day is holy to the Lord your God, he, he then is instructing these deeply convicted men and women saying something that's kind of surprising. He says, do not mourn or weep. It's time to stop that. And now listen, Ezra could have at this point just got, piled on shame and guilt at this moment. This is exactly how you should feel. You should be broken. You have let the Lord down. You have been unfaithful. You have been ungodly. He, he could have done that. Instead, here he is calling them to joy. As we'll, we'll see in a bit, he, he's calling them to celebrate even with the good gifts of God, right? Uh, namely, community and food and, and wine. And, and, and why is he doing this? Well, he's doing it because God is always faithful to his people. As Adam Mabry so beautifully said, I think it was in your reflection quotes last week, he said, the story of the whole Bible is in many ways the story of a people who always forget their God and a God who always remembers his people. Now don't don't hear as we're wrong here. He's not saying there's no place for mourning, there's no place for weeping among God's people. It's not one of those, you know, there's no crying in baseball thing. You have to stop because of that. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, we know that, right? For, for as Solomon affirms in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, right? There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. But what Ezra is saying is, is this community feast, this day that, de- that, that God has set apart, this is not the appropriate time for mourning and weeping. Just like dressing for a funeral at a wedding is not an appropriate way to to show up. It it doesn't fit the occasion. It's not the right time because the festival celebrates the commitment of God to his people. So he's reminding them, right, this is the day to remember the forgiveness of God. This is the day for you to remember all the works that the Lord has done, delivering us from from Egypt and all the other things, right, that the goodness of God to his covenant people, of which these people that are weeping right now, they are. You see, with, with Christ there is Joy even in the midst of of guilt and shame. There there is joy because our God is faithful even when we, we, his people, are not. Yes, consequences remain. But your standing before God is based upon God's faithfulness, not not yours. The conviction of the people here, this is the the first sign of this restorative work that God is is doing in them. And, And God's not asking them to do any penance, is he? It just returned to his open arms. I mean, you think about the the story we know so well, right, of the prodigal son. After the son had demanded his inheritance from his father and the father gives it to him, after he's gone out and he's squandered on rebellious and sinful ways, the, the son comes home and he's broken and he's weighed down by guilt and shame. And he's hoping, you know, just hoping, maybe maybe my father will let me come into the household as a slave that I can work here and just have that part of it, but his father doesn't demand that he earn his place in the household again. He doesn't demand repayment. You remember the story? The father embraces him. The father clothes him with his best robes. The father gives him a ring. He puts shoes on his feet, which is a significant thing for them, right? And then the father throws a giant celebratory, celebratory party in, in his son's honor. My son is back. The whole point of Jesus in the story is that our God, your your, your God, our our Heavenly Father, He's like that. Too often, we, even after receiving faith in Christ, we we live our days with this messed up idea that, you know, God's mad at me or ashamed of me all the time. Christian, you need to know that God not only loves you, but but God actually likes you. Likes you. Further, don't forget that genuine joy is part of what redemption restores in our lives. And, and while it's true that, that, that their sin was massive, right, this conviction is right, right, God's mercy is yet even greater than their sin. And, and that's what Ezra's getting at here, their, their willingness to now, to now celebrate, to well, we'll show that they understood not, not just the commands of the Lord, but also the mercy of God. Real, real joy doesn't have to look like a party it often doesn't but honestly is, is there joy in, in your heart today so joy just knowing the Lord joy to be present here this morning joy to be forgiven this day joy to not be alone but surrounded at this moment right surrounded by th- those in this room that also know what it's like to be forgiven to be redeemed what it's like to to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus to be weird in a lot of ways and yet not be alone in your weirdness this isn't the perfect church, but it's God's church. It's his people. Are we finding joy in that? Can, can you experience joy in the fact that you know God and, and more importantly, that you are known by God? Can, can you rejoice in the, in the providence of God in your life? Right? These believers assembled in Jerusalem in this moment, they're, they're looking back on, on their history. Why? Because you can see God's goodness and his sovereign providence to us in those moments. You see the things you didn't get, right? When you see the way the, the accident caused this to happen in the end or, or when you got caught doing this and the way that it brought you into a greater relation with the Lord or whatever it might be, you're just seeing the, the sovereign hand of God guiding and, and guarding, right? That's what they're seeing as they look back. That's what we see when we look back. Do you rejoice when you look back on your life and remember all that the Lord's given you? Relationships Restored bountiful provisions of all sorts you find joy in the the certainty of eternity with God in in Christ right no matter what happens you might get the worst medical diagnosis in the next two days and yet if your faith is in Christ you are secure for all of eternity to live with God there's joy in that in verse 10, we, we read that very well-known phrase, for, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's in the context, right? We don't usually see it in context of, of, of why they shouldn't be grieved. Why should you not be grieved? Don't mourn because the joy of the Lord is your strength. That that Hebrew word strength here, it's used to describe uh, fortresses, safe places where, where someone goes in a time of danger. And, and his point is, right, as you have become aware of your sin, as you are grieving right now, which is the right thing to be doing, uh, the place to go for refuge now, for protection, is to God himself. You don't run from God, which might be your, first, your initial reaction, right? You run to God because the mercy of the Lord is the only safe place for a sinner to find shelter. As Derek Thomas says, Nehemiah understood the connection between spiritual energy and joy. Sorrow drains us of energy, leaving no taste for food or company. Joy, on the other hand, invigorates and energizes. In one sense, if we would focus more on finding honest to goodness, godly joy in the Lord, we would find energy for so much more of what the Lord has called us to in this life. Now the third observation I I want you to see is the expression of joy that Ezra calls them to. You see it first in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Right? It sounds like unhealthy advice on some level, unless you're keto or whatever. Um, right, the fat, this is the choicest part of, of the animals, what he's talking about. It's the tastiest, most expensive, most bestest, I sound like Little Caesars, best part of uh, the animal that you eat, right? The, the sweet wine, this is a, a wine that was reserved for, for special occasions. This is big eating, good eating, right? But, but more importantly, um, why does Ezra say that they should eat the fat and drink the sweet wine? Well, what's he What's the reason there, right? You see it there? Be, because the day is holy, because this day is set apart to the Lord. It seems kind of odd, doesn't it? That the Lord has set this day apart as, as holy, so let's gather and feast on good food and drink good wine and share this, this food and this good wine with, with everyone who, who doesn't have any? You see, as, as Reformed folks, most of you know the, the first catechism question, Right? What is the chief end of man? And if you've not heard that before, right, it means why do you, what's the reason we exist? What's your purpose in life? It's the, the big question. And what's the answer to it? You know what? Go ahead and say it. Man's, that's right, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Listen, there is certainly a place for sorrow and mourning, for silence, for contemplation. Uh, there is a place for broken-hearted conviction of sin. But, but some of us, just dwell there some of us live as though our purpose is only to glorify god and you get stuck in that place you you forget that we are also called to enjoy god or even as as john piper famously said right we we glorify god best by enjoying god So, so christian learn to rejoice in the peace that you have with god to, to take that moment every once in a while when you think about, right, the weight of your sin and you just exhale, right? That exhale that comes when you realize, you know what, my sins really are forgiven in Christ and, and not in, in some accumulation of, of good works that I accomplish. There's a place for that too, don't hear me wrong, but it's, it's not the place of earning your, your peace with God, your relationship with the Lord, the love of him. And also, let us learn to enjoy the bountiful good gifts of God. <clears throat> it's interesting, he says, This day is holy to the Lord. And it's not just stand here and be serious this whole time. He's saying, You go, you go out and you rejoice with these people. You enjoy the good gifts that I have given in, in the fat meat or whatever the fat, the, the tastiest meat and the sweetest wine. Joe, Joe Rigney, in his, his book, Things of Earth, goes this. A wonderful job of teaching how to enjoy God's gifts. He, he asks this question, right? Why did God make a world for his own glory in Christ and then fill it to the brim with pleasures? Physical pleasures, sensible pleasures, emotional pleasures, uh, relational pres- pleasures. Why, why did God make a world full of good friends and sizzling bacon, the laughter of children, Texas sunsets, Dr. Pepper, college football, marital love, and the warmth of warm socks? He says we honor the creator by enjoying in a a proper way, right? Don't hear this and think, frat party. There is a proper way to do this. But we honor the creator by enjoying in proper ways all that God has created. Or or as Calvin speaks of it from the opposite angle, right? He he says, um, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. Now the other action that Ezra calls the people to is to share their good food and their good wine with those who don't have any. Right And why? Why don't they have any? Either one, they have it at home, and they're so far from home, they don't have anywhere nearby, so they don't have any for that reason, or because they are too poor to have had any choice meats or sweet wines to begin with. Now now even a cursory reading of of Deuteronomy, which they might have just read, right? It's in the Torah, there's high chance it was just read to them this day. Um, Even a cursory reading makes it clear that God is concerned about the poor, about widows, about the fatherless, about foreigners. That's what he's asking them to provide for here in a lot of ways. So you you'd notice then back in verse 9 that, that Ezra says, he said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Right? There's a personal aspect there. But, but later in verse 10, Ezra calls them to share with others. Right after he's done that, you, you notice, is it plural or singular there? Or how's it worded, right? He doesn't say your God. He, he says, this day is holy to our God. He's pulling them in. We are collectively in this together. This celebration of God's goodness is not to be self-centered. There there is an important communal aspect to this. They have covenant commitments. We have covenant commitments to each other because of that. And then our our passage ends there in verse 12. You can read along. I'll read it again, right? As we learn of their obedience, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I really want to dilute this down to it's real, basically, what we just saw, right? It, it's so simple. God's Word is read. His Word is explained. They're convicted of their sin. And, and now they joyfully celebrate the continued mercy and faithfulness of God. They obey the other side, not just, right? They, you know, you understand, you believe the mercy of God. The, the, this transition from weeping to joy, from sorrow to comfort, it's, it's, it's absolutely what, what God, through the prophet Jeremiah, promise would occur later in the New Testament. When, when Jeremiah said, right, I, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I'm going to take their sorrow and I'm going to give them gladness. It's also what Jesus taught the, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5:5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The, the Lord is, that's who he is. He, he comforts the, the broken. He comforts those who are contrite. Right? Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart Oh God you will not despise. These, these contrite Israelites have mourned and now they are comforted by the mercy of God. That, that despite generations even of sin and neglect of God's word, God remains faithful to them. Ever, always faithful to them. And they remain his people. So, so you and I, we, we are comforted in our sin knowing that our, our, our conviction leads to repentance and, and leads always back to, to Christ, always back to the cross, always back to the empty tomb where, where we find forgiveness of our sin, where, where we too, because uh, faith in Jesus know that we will continue to belong, belong to God both now and forever. And, and, and finally, just as the Israelites were called to share the, the good gifts of God with those in need, so, so too are, are you called to share what the Lord has given you. And yes, that means your food, If you open your house, that you share that with people. It means your wine, that you share your wine with people, that you celebrate with others. I think we could all stand to do that in a godly fashion better, but, but also to share the greatest gift that God has ever given you, to share the message of the gospel, to share the hope of, of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that we, we share the joy that God has, has given us, that the Lord has, has filled us with as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, our Lord, often told stories about parties when speaking of your kingdom. Your kingdom is like a wedding feast. Your kingdom is like a great banquet. Father, teach us, to, teach us generosity to others. Teach us to celebrate your goodness and to, to love and, and mercy. Even in the midst of our own journeys, teach us to to celebrate, to find joy in you. Even the experience of so much brokenness and sin. Ever remind us that celebration is a gift that you give us as your people, as your children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.